0: Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration issues. I'm Stephen Murens. We are joined today by Raj Sharma, a partner at the Calgary law firm Stuart Sharma Harsanyi. Raj previously appeared on Borderlines podcast episode three about marriage fraud, and I encourage you to listen to that episode if that's a topic that interests you. I think it was one of our, uh, one of the most substantive discussions about marriage fraud and immigration that you will uh, find on the internet. Uh, Today, what was initially supposed to be an episode about procedural fairness letters turned into a wide ranging conversation that can perhaps best be described as getting things off our chest. Uh, Raj, Deanna and I discuss issues of possible bias against people from Punjab, unreasonable documentation requests, Responding to procedural fairness letters, uh, tunnel vision on the part of officers, how if an officer, a visa officer, goes out looking for misrepresentation or a mistake in an application, that they'll probably find it somewhere. Uh, IRCC, that's Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, misleading Parliament about whether it bounces applications for incompleteness and more. As I said at the end of the episode, it felt therapeutic in a way, and if you've ever encountered any of these issues, if you've ever represented someone in an immigration application, if you're an immigration consultant or lawyer, or you just want to know about different issues that uh, people who interact with the system often often come up against, uh, I think you'll really enjoy this episode, and Raj is always entertaining. If you'd like to connect with Raj, you can find him on Twitter at ImLawyerCanada. That's at I-M-M-LawyerCanada, all one word. Uh, If you'd like to contact me, you can find me on Twitter also at Smeurins at S-M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S. You can also email me or Deanna. Uh, If you search either of our names, you'll find our respective law firms pretty quickly. And if you would like to support the show, please leave a review on iTunes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, well, first, thank Raj, thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah. It's a pleasure and to
1: be back, even though yeah. it's virtual.
0: Even though it's virtual. Hopefully we can do this more often. We've kind of developed a little bit of a groove with virtual recordings that were easier than in person. Um, but why don't we kick it off with a discussion of when you actually have a right to a procedural fairness letter versus when an officer can just refuse your application? And I guess the question that you know we all might be asked by clients is, will IRCC ever just refuse an application or do I always get a procedural fairness letter?
1: Yeah, it, it's. I think number one is that that procedural fairness letter is very, very important. So I think uh, people again, the IRCC website always sorts of indicates that you don't need a lawyer um, to assist. And I think as soon as you get a procedural fairness letter, um, you have to be on guard and you have to do a good job in in, in terms of responding to it. Um, when I first looked at sort of our overview of our discussion. Um, I went back and, and to kind of look at the sort of development of this procedural fairness uh, regime. And, and it's only about 50 years ago, uh, only about 50 <laughs> years ago was there's, you know, I think Denning, Lord Denning, I uh, remember him from law school. So Lord Denning sort of, um, you know, put the seal of approval that, hey, wait a second, in immigration, there's actually a duty of fairness. And so that was, I think, a 1967 case. And it's just like, well, an immigration officer should... Uh, put his concerns to the immigrant and allow him an opportunity to disabuse him of those concerns. So that was only 1967 or so. Um, and and so immigration law has sort of evolved, I think, over, over that period of time, because before you were saying, well, duty of fairness only arises in a sort of judicial uh, proceeding or quasi-judicial proceeding and not an administrative context. So this this duty of fairness, this procedural fairness regime has only been with us for, a, you know, a few decades. It's developed over time. And yes, it, it sort of is tied into the right that is at stake. There has to be some sort of significant uh, right at stake. And, and obviously, we sort of view it, I suppose, uh, arising from Singh, which is Um, and and from Baker, which is, what is fairness? It's the right to be heard. It's the right to have these sort of concerns uh, put to you, and and you have to have some venue to um, respond or provide um, information. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean an interview. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it just means uh, procedural fairness, opportunity in writing. Um, And it, it arises where there's an issue Other than, let's say, sufficiency of evidence or completeness of the application.
0: Yeah, I think that's the key uh, distinction. We should do a whole podcast on Baker, which was a Supreme Court of Canada decision from the 90s uh, in a future episode. But basically, the way the procedural jurisprudence generally tends to read is that, as you said, the officers don't have an ability or don't have a duty to. Uh, correct or seek clarifications on insufficiency of evidence but where it gets into credibility or the veracity of documents
1: or admissibility
0: or or admissibility or extrinsic where they're relying on an external document uh, they do have a duty to send this uh, procedural fairness letter now how can you tell when something is a concern about credibility versus a concern about insufficiency of evidence?
1: It, it's tough because I think the officers have gotten the memo that uh, refusing something on credibility requires them to uh, do more work, which is to uh, advise of those concerns in a procedural fairness letter, so they cloak it in the guise of uh, insufficiency. So. Um. There and so I, I don't want to use sneaky. It's just human beings are lazy by nature. It's just the way that we're sort of made. And so instead of saying, well, I I'm not I'm not I have concerns about employment. Um, so for example, one of my I had to do this for my own uh, legal assistant. One of her applications before she, uh, she came over here, her application was refused because the officer. Uh, wasn't satisfied with her duties, her employment uh, duties, and so what the officer said is, well, your employment duties for this 1-2 uh, knock code, the employment duties are almost identical to the uh, to the duties listed in the, in the NOC, and therefore I'm refusing your application. Now, obviously that he had some concerns that the information provided was not correct, but you can't just refuse it on that basis. You have to then give this sort of opportunity and, and and there's some case law that developed out of that as well. So there's an interesting case that I sort of rely upon, which is um, it's Cho. It's a it's a pro decision. But to sort of determine whether this is a credibility issue or whether this is insufficiency evidence, you have to look at could the officer have made this decision without impugning the veracity of the information or documents before him or her. Um, so Cho is, is helpful, I think, to sort of uh, sift the the decision and and so what is the officer saying now some some insufficiency is very clear Um, the officer um, needs to determine uh, language proficiency and and there's no um, there's no language proficiency test well that's obviously the application is incomplete or the application the officer does not have sufficient information to determine eligibility or admissibility well there's no procedural fairness that arises from that.
0: No, I think it's interesting uh, you, uh, in terms of the way that decisions can be drafted to kind of conceal what's going on. And it reminds me well, many years ago, a Canada Border Services agency officer once told me, uh, Mr. Murrens, I know that by putting at the start of my decision, I have considered everything before me, that I'm 95% of the way to winning any judicial review just by including that sentence, regardless of what follows. And there's a little bit of, uh, you can see that, some and often what appear to be boilerplate uh, notes in the IRCC decisions that just say, I believe there is insufficient evidence. And then it becomes, like you said, a question of parsing through the actual decision and what was provided to say, well, is, this, is that really what went on here? Hmm.
2: I don't know if you two agree, but I do find that Vavilov has been helpful in that respect, because I think just saying that all of the evidence has been considered doesn't necessarily go the distance unless they have specifically explained what about um, the evidence leads them to a feeling that there is inadequacy or that they have failed to make out the claim. And I'm finding that the, the the courts are a little bit more receptive to that now than they once were.
0: Yeah, I've uh, had I, a I few do... lawyers contact me, Deanna, about that episode that we did where we went through line by line parts of Vavilov, which I mean anyone who reads Vavilov could have done as well. But mm. that like the officer did uh, not consider evidence put forward. The officer did not consider internal guidance. And there's now this list of um, factors that they have to consider. Mm hmm. I would agree with uh, Diana
1: as well. Uh, Vavlov is a positive step. That being said, in our world, and I guess some of the listeners uh, who are not uh, professionals, in our world, there's different types of decisions, and the 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 duty of fairness is flexible. So it kind of depend depends on the context.
2: For sure. So
1: where you have someone in Canada who's um, had a refugee proceeding or uh, any sort of tribunal decision, that's going to typically attract a high degree of this sort of duty. So the, the decision maker, the officer or the decision maker has a higher threshold to meet, and that's where Vavilov really comes in handy. Now, for decisions outside of Canada, this is a little bit more like the wild, wild west. Most of the officers overseas know that the only review is federal court in Canada, which is expensive, and you need a lawyer in Canada. Um, Mm -hmm. So the officers have a little bit more uh, scope, shall we say, and decisions overseas are in terms of a foreign national trying to enter Canada, uh, again, the scope depends, is it a PR application, is it within the family class, or is it just a visitor visa application? If someone's coming on a visitor visa application and officers are enjoined or required to process thousands of these things, how much onus or burden are we going to put on officer rendering TRV decisions? Not that much, because the system would grind to a hard, uh, halt if you expected the same threshold of fairness um, that you would on, for example, a tribunal within Canada. So the scope of the duty depends on the nature of the application, the the status of the individual applying and the the sort of repercussions on -hmm. that individual in terms of the decision. So the duty of fairness for a decision rendered inside Canada against a permanent resident, for example, allegations of misrepresentation are going to be different than a foreign national facing allegations of misrepresentation seeking to enter as a visitor outside Canada.
0: It's a
2: really excellent point, but um, what I have I've been doing a, a large number of federal court judicial review applications for outside Canada applicants and I've been finding that my success rate is extraordinarily high since Vavilov and I think the shame of it is that so few people are going to actually launch those challenges. But um, I can't think of one that hasn't been successful because I find the error rate in terms of officers not, um, not turning their mind to um, whether or not it's, credibility versus insufficiency and so many of them being on the wrong side of that line but um, as you say the expense of making those kinds of applications is very high and I think lawyers are still not recommending them because the standard um, is so high and because it's still so unknown and many of those cases are actually being settled but I think it's just that the The power dynamic is such that the visa officers keep getting to make these decisions repeatedly, and I think as, as as counsel, we do know that when we're dealing with applicants, say, you know, you're you're applying from Pakistan and you're wanting to make a visitor visa application. Like there are things that we know as practitioners, these are going to be challenging applications to make and that the the degree of discretion afforded that visa officer is quite large and the duty of fairness is considered to be on the low end of the spectrum. So there are real challenges there, I think.
0: I'd be curious yeah. I'm like and to learn kind of what's gone on in the last year or two because I almost speculate that it's AI doing everything but the final like submit where a visa officer might even just be reviewing a decision at the end because a lot of I'm sure as you've noticed both of you the decisions in GCMS sometimes bear which is the Global Case Management System where the notes are stored often bear little resemblance to the application that was submitted. Um, And I have a hard time believing that someone who actually read the application with human eyes is typing a lot of the refusal decisions as they appear in GCMS. That's just speculation on my part, because I can't think of, uh, I, I don't understand why else there are decisions that, do bear so little resemblance to the application.
1: Well, let's uh, let's modify Hanlon's razor. I think the Hanlon's razor is never ascribed to uh, malice that which can be explained by incompetence. Let's let's modify that. Never ascribe to AI that which can be ex- explained by incompetence and and pressure and, and, and deadlines
2: and laziness, as you said. You know, be. yeah. Like I
0: have heard that the average visa decision takes about two minutes, um, just given the volume. And
2: when you look at how many of those refusals are going to become subject to federal court judicial review, I would say the percentage is, you know, in the range of 5%. Um, And I think the fact that, you know, in my own particular practice that so many are succeeding, it's still like it's it's a very expensive and time-consuming process. And even if you're successful, it doesn't mean it's not going to go back and get refused again with better reasons. And so well, um, it's, it's a big gamble. Yeah,
1: they're, they're adapting. They're, they're, it's like the Borg, right? So as soon as you sort of... Uh... <laughs> you know, modulate your shields or, or, or change up your phaser or, or photon torpedoes or whatever else, they'll adapt. It's a bit of a, a cat and mouse game. I, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, I agree with Jenna. I think I could probably, if I wanted to, restrict my entire practice to federal court of overseas uh, refusals. Totally. Um, so they, but they too are adapting. So over the years and, you know, the standard advice years ago was simply to reapply for a refused visitor visa application. Um, and I only got into this probably about five or six years ago when I did the visitor visa application for my wife's uh, uncle, who is this mm. very, very successful, rich guy out of Rajasthan, India, who has, I think, about 350 employees. And so we do the application. It gets rejected. Now, I don't know. In, in my culture, like it's I don't recommend any punjabi or indian to work for or assist family members but <laughs> i had to obviously I had to obviously deal with this so when we go for the rule 9 response is uh, essentially no travel history therefore no visa it was one sentence and so yeah. i went to the federal court i was so annoyed and going to the federal court for a visitor visa refusal is like using a hammer to kill a mosquito yeah. Um, so when I went to federal court, I said, OK, and it literally it was two paragraph uh, GR. I was like, OK, no travel history, therefore no visa, but no visa, therefore no travel history. Um, and and there was some other comments about, you know, India and the general economic situation for India versus Canada. I'm like, well, if we're based on this is a poor country or the general economic conditions are poor compared to Canada, then then restrict the Ambani's. There's more yeah. billionaires in India than there are in Canada. So if it's yeah. generalized, then no one's getting a visa visa. So after that, and there's so
2: much jurisprudence on all of this saying these are all, not all legitimate of, grounds. I mean, it's just yeah. such a waste of everybody's time.
1: So after that, I guess the Punjabis mostly in, in Alberta has figured out that Raj has a solution to these refusals. And so then all of a sudden, I've, I've probably done hundreds, but now they've adapted again. So now, if there's even if we succeed on consent or federal court, it goes back, the officers are, you know, let's say there's an interview or it's refused on similar grounds. Now, I sent my response to a PFL, to Delhi, to Steve on a, on a relatively recent case. I did about 10 of these R4, Section 40, uh, you know, the spousal open work permit refusals out of India. And, you know, I sort of flipped out, I, I, I think, uh, in that response <laughs> <laughs> because I was like, OK, the response is basically, how come your response to the PFL, uh answers all our questions. How come you couldn't say this in the interview, but you said it in the PFL? So I'm like, okay, let me get this straight. You gave him a PFL, and now you castigate him because the responses satisfy your concerns. So if you didn't satisfy the concerns, he'd be rejected. And if you satisfy the concerns, he's rejected because he should have said that prior to the PFL. So this this crazy catch-22, this strange Kafka uh, conflict that I now have with New Delhi is is uh, is now you know we're we're getting and this is a federal court return the, the, and I I said I, I said I guess we're going back to the federal court it's inevitable, um so it's a very strange situation where you're right yeah we we've done all this there's this quasi solution out there but now they've adapted as well and unfortunately um we've all of us who've done this have perhaps were elevating their game. We're, we're training them. We're training them on case That's law. Right. We're training them on jurisprudence. And so they are now better. Um, and I guess we have to get better, right? It's and, a and, and it's funny strange militarization of administrative
2: law. Exactly. But different visa offices clearly have different games because you're playing the game with um, Chandigarh and uh, Delhi, and yeah. New Delhi. I'm playing it with, uh, you know, with Beijing. and uh, And their game is sometimes you get sent back for redetermination and they just decide to sit and wait until I bring a mandamus application, you know, or um, Manila, and they um, decide that it's a, you know, they'll try something. And so, and, you know, don't even talk about Pretoria. Like, they've all got their own little games. and Manila, so, Manila,
1: Manila, we're going to do a criminal equivalency <laughs> of charges oh, that were dropped in oh, 1984.
2: Exactly. Perjury based on something that they have to do in the Philippines with birth registration that doesn't even exist in Canada. Like, there but, are all these... That I are had out of the Catholicism, percent- you know, like um But r- remember one thing, one
1: thing that I've learned now after seventeen <laughs> years doing this, certain visa offices have racialized assessments of credibility and risk. And until you yeah. are in this world, you won't understand. You're like, Well, that's True. that's crazy. Why would these officers do this? I'm like, you don't understand unless you, you know, walk a mile in my shoes.
2: Well, this is the nugget there because, I mean, again, bringing up Manila, you just got my hackles up. It's because, you know, there's no divorce in Manila, for example. So people do what they need to do when they're in an abusive marriage. They go off and all sorts of shenanigans ensue because they can't get a divorce. And it's like, but it's, you know, everyone talks about, you know, Filipinos and misrepresentation. But this is, it's a racialization of a... um, And they're hunting for misrep. So totally, 10%. Client,
1: client is married to his wife in Philippines. He's married, yeah. legally married in the Philippines. Can't get divorced in the Philippines. He's married in the Philippines. Yes. Comes to Canada, separate from his wife, goes to Vegas, gets a legal valid divorce issued out of Nevada. Yes. Comes back to Canada, applies for permanent residency. Manila is like, oh you're now inadmissible because your divorce certificate in Nevada is not recognized in the Philippines. You've married right. someone and therefore you've committed bigamy. me. And I'm like, step back yeah. section 36, one B C, whatever you want to say, the offense has to occur right in the place. Right. And yeah. so there's no offense in Nevada and there's no offense in the Philippines. So yeah. you're just very, they, they're hunting for, Misrup. They're hunting for inadmissibility, and what happens? you do when it based on this?
2: committing an offense, right? But
1: what what happens when you're hunting for something? Yes. Oddly enough, you tend to find it. Of if you're course. hunting for misrep, you will find
2: it. Absolutely. And so, but again, um, but again, I think that what you're saying here, in terms of the drivers here, what is the public policy incentive for doing this sort of thing? And, um. And and you know I, I think that looking at this from a first principles perspective, what is it that they're actually after in this way? Because in the Philippines, I think that there's such a clear cause and effect component. Um, you know. Where I, I just wonder whether anyone has done this kind of strategic thinking about what is the so-called evil that they're trying to get at, that they're trying to um, to get out of the Canadian immigration system. They talk about it as, it as being a kind of integrity of the Canadian immigration system, but I really am at a loss here.
1: Well, some offices are facilitative and some offices are um, enforcement-minded, and we you know, if we look at there are competing objectives of the of the IRPA, which is in Section 3. So one of it is, of course, to uphold the integrity of the immigration system. So y- you can't run roughshod over that either, because if you did, then public support, which is vital, public support for our uh, immigration program would uh, would drop. So there is some basis to it. But I agree. I mean, there has to be some um, there has to be some, you know, there's, there's lies and then there's, I guess, damned lies, right? I mean, there's I agree, there should be some sort of uh, understanding of the uh,
0: fragility of the human condition, as Justice Shore so eloquently puts yeah. it. Mm-hmm. So while we're on the topic of visa-specific policies, let's uh, jump to Chandigarh and New Delhi. And Raj, you'd mentioned that you'd sent me a copy of a response that you had sent in response, of a response that you had sent to the uh, Canadian High Commission. And the reason you had CC'd me, or sent me a copy of the response, I wasn't actually CC'd, was because of some internal documents that I had put on my blog regarding uh, a deliberate, what I call the IRCC deterrence policy. So I've just pulled up the post. And Diana, I'm not sure if you've read it or not, but it's to summarize, there's a series of emails that were released in which the first Secretary of Migration at the High Commission of Canada in New Delhi emailed the program officer to express concerns about what they believed was an increase in fraud, um, citing different stats amongst work, open spousal work permit applicants, and the at least as far as these emails said, the Canadian uh, visa offices in New Delhi uh, quote, support the application of A40, which is misrepresentation in R4 refusals, so genuineness cases involving open spousal work permits. And going forward, um, we are trying to quote, reduce the number of subsequent applications we get when we believe that there may be a marriage of convenience. And I think this was the uh, quote that especially got Raj, uh, Raj's notice was: We also want to send a message to the community, and to do so, are going to start applying misrepresentation wherever possible. Um,
2: So this public deterrence motivation for using the misrepresentation.
0: Well, there's and it's not. Yeah, it's a public. It's not a public policy. We only learned about it through internal emails. Um, it's definitely a policy that I'd say has been noticed because I've certainly noticed out of the New Delhi visa office. Um, certainly, we've been, I've been contacted by many more people who have misrepresentation refusals. And there's a two-part question to this because later I want to talk about a specific procedural fairness letter that seems to only originate out of that office regarding employers and work permit applications. But Raj, when you see something like that, and you know that an office is going to be, as you said, looking for misrepresentation, and when you really look for something, you possibly will find it, how do you approach a procedural fairness letter or an application in that context?
1: Well, whatever, you know, the response that I did, I would only recommend to sort of other experienced immigration lawyers such as yourself, yourselves. Um, You know, I went a little bit over the top on that one. And and the reason for that is that I I suspect now we're approaching bad faith. Um, We're approaching bad faith because I have a reported decision. Um, You know, these issues were addressed by Justice Zinn in a reported decision. and, And, you know, it is not for officers to disregard on point decisions by the federal court. So that's one issue.
2: Sorry, you have a reported decision on this particular case that was... Sorry, explain what you mean by you had a reported decision.
1: Right. We challenged the original decision. So the original decision was my clients um, met in school. They fell in love. uh, They're from different sort of casts and backgrounds. So the girl comes here. She's a student. She goes back to get married. And what happens is that they essentially elope. They elope and... Because her family is uh, and her father is relatively well known, and in fact had beaten the husband uh, a couple of years ago when he discovered their sort of uh, their love, Um, they decide quite properly to go and get married in a different state. So they go and get married in a different state. They get a marriage certificate and they apply for an open work permit for the husband to join them in Canada. Now the first interview he gets called in and it's the same officer. So Officer AP, out of the seven or eight federal court applications I've done on similar issues, Officer AP is the one that interviews them and refers the matter to an interview. Uh, She started off as a locally engaged officer. And in fact, I cross-examined her on 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 another federal court matter some years ago. What they said is, well, The marriage certificate out of this Arya Samaj temple, basically very simple ceremony. People go there, low cost, quick, a favorite of couples that elope, I suppose. Some of the marriage certificates from these types of temples from this particular town where you guys went have been found to be uh, fraudulent or they've been done for money. So a couple goes and gets their marriage certificate verified by the appropriate authorities. It gets refused, and it gets refused not on I'm not satisfied that this marriage certificate is valid. It gets refused on it's a fraudulent document. So there's the misrep, and that's a five year ban. And why that's important is that if the husband is denied on misrep, that means the, the student that's in Canada, that's here on a postgrad work permit perhaps, she too is inadmissible for misrepresentation for five years, and her PR will probably be waylaid. So we challenged this decision, and you know, luckily it ended up before Justice Zinn, and and so that's now been reported, and we dealt with this, and and Justice Zinn is like, well, looks oh, so this like wasn't a
2: sponsorship application, this was like a federal court, uh, like a federal, like a skilled worker application or something.
1: It, no, no, it was a spousal open work permit, and so I see, so, okay, right. So what what happens is that if you're a permanent resident or citizen, and you get married and sponsor someone. If the officer is not satisfied that the marriage is not genuine, it's refused on Regulation 4, which means you have a right of appeal to the Immigration Appeal Division. Now, on these students that are trying to bring their husbands over, it gets refused. We're like, oh, we don't think it's a genuine marriage, which is the wording of Regulation 4, but because we don't think it's a genuine marriage, I think you've lied to us. This is a misrepresentation under Section 40, which is the five-year ban. So this is why it's pernicious. This is why it's litigious. This is why Stephen's uh, materials indicate this is very litigious because we have to go to the federal court. If we don't get this thing overturned, there's going to be a five-year ban and there's going to be a PR that's going to be waylaid in the future.
0: And that so, is an interesting, as I have JRs on that ongoing as well, um, where the status of them is, who knows, because of COVID and everything in the federal court is delayed if, Justice doesn't consent, but it's this issue of when does insufficiency of evidence become misrepresentation. And yeah. in their case, um, I'm not sure how many work permits you do through uh, uh, Chandigarh and New Delhi. And that JR wasn't actually my application, but I have since on subsequent applications gotten in uh, a procedural fairness letter. And I've seen on the listserv of lawyers, uh, immigration lawyers, the Canadian Bar Association listserv, that this appears to be a common request. And I even did a uh, access to information request to try to figure out what gave rise to this concern. And there's nothing. It just seems like it's a standard request in a work permit application. So what they are asking a work permit applicant is, first they say, please send this to your employer. And the employer is asked, what steps will you take to ensure visa compliance, which is sort of weird, but fine. We were, as a joke, going to be like, we'll seize his passport. I don't know what you want us to do. Um, but then the other questions, provide a description of your business, provide your business registration, provide your most recent unaudited financial statements, Canada revenue notice of assessment for the last three years, an org chart of your business listing the job titles and name of all employees, evidence that you have been playing employment insurance premiums. A list of your major customers, including supporting Whoa. materials such as sales contracts and accounts receivable. A list of your major suppliers, including supporting materials such as purchase contracts and accounts payable. Copy of your business lease and website of the company. So what is the employee? A work yeah. permit applicant. And in the case that we're JRing, it was a long haul truck driver. Who the Canadian employer obviously didn't want to provide their employee with all of these documents. It's not even their employee, somebody who hasn't even started yet. Um, and then, in terms of the looking for misrep, they discovered that in one of the financial statements, empl- they couldn't, they basically determined, based on a financial statement that was two years old, that the amount of money. That the company had earned was less than the salary that would be paid to the foreign national, therefore they couldn't pay the foreign national. Therefore, the company had committed misrep. Therefore, oh, the uh, foreign national had committed. We're misrep. doing.
1: We're doing. We're doing almost identical.
0: Cases. Yeah, deterrence. Wow. You know, supposedly. Yeah. Uh, so how you know you get a procedural fairness letter like that, um, and you really do like as there's, I mean you can. Preface any concerns you have with the fairness of that letter in a cover letter like what you did, Raj, but from the applicant's perspective, uh, you really have to just hope that your employer is willing to give someone who hasn't started yet a but, lot of pretty sensitive information but, about but uh, what you're seeing client.
1: Though- but what you're seeing there, though, Stephen, what you're seeing there is uh, a creation of an ad hoc policy by certain individuals within the visa office, and they're doing it for a particular reason that is outside perhaps of their statutory mandate. So again, now we are approaching bad faith. If you mm-hmm. want to deny long haul truck drivers, and that's fine. I'm doing. I've done 15, 20 of those recently as well. It seems that there's a concerted non legal push to restrict truck driver work permits, perhaps because of the humble tragedy Um, that is certainly there. And so, again, you have discretion. Without discretion, the gears of the machinery for immigration will not work. They'll jam up. But now you're talking about massive discretion where you can invent requirements that are only tangentially Related. I mean, presumably the employment bonafides should have been assessed by Service Canada, and there yeah. should be some level of deference to the LMIA, Some level. I'm not saying that the officer can overcome it. There's case law that says they can't. But this is the concern. And so now, on my case, we've succeeded with Justice Sin. It's gone. Justice Sin has said that the response addresses every concern raised. The outcome appears to be contrary to the evidence before the decision-maker. Now it's gone back and the officers are now going back down the same path. And so that's when the over-the-top response came in, which is, okay, according to the materials on Mr. Murrin's blog, which he gained through uh, access to information requests, it appears that you are targeting specific communities in India. I would note right. that all of my JRs, and I gave a table of all of them and the <laughs> outcomes, I said I note all of them are Punjabi, and in fact, all of them belong to the Sikh religion.
0: Right. right? There we're is a weird not, racial component we are not when you have seeing... a visa office adopting a policy of we're going to find misrep everywhere, but it's only in one visa office. There's a strange
1: don't see I don't see, I don't see any, right. any refuses for Tamils. I don't see any refusals out of Andhra. I don't see any refusals out of Goa. All I see is Punjab, which can fit between Calgary and Edmonton, is, <laughs> constitutes 100% of the refusals that I'm JRing. Um, and so th- with that, the, but the misrep, they're going that extra step. They, they could have just said, look, I'm not satisfied. Therefore, I'm refusing it on Section 16 or 20, right? They could have done that. Instead, they go that extra, you know, I said officers are lazy at times or sneaky or lazy. Here, they're taking the extra step. We're going to interview them, and we're going to make a finding of a Section 41 when they don't need to. And they're doing it on purpose to dis- stop repeat applications, and they're doing it to send a message to a certain community, and that community happens to be Punjabi and, more specifically, Sikh.
2: Um, sorry, something that you said, Raj, is that... Um, From the beginning, I mean, it's always been my um, experience that when you're dealing with anything spousal related out of India, that there's just a whole additional layer of complexity because of the caste system and because of just the way marriages um, work, where when you're dealing with genuineness of marriages, let's say in Any other part of the world, it's like two people are marrying. But you know that when you're dealing with a marriage application in India, they're like... You know, how did your families come to meet one another? Why did your parents accept one another's spouses as acceptable candidates? And they do look into things like, what caste are you from? What religion? Why would your parents have accepted somebody from a different caste, from a different religion? So again, there's this whole element here. If different couples were going to a particular temple because they were willing to marry intercast, like they were willing to conduct intercast marriages, it's almost that it's penalizing groups that were having to take certain routes because of the fact that you know there were limitations within that society as well so in terms of targeting too there are specific um, uh, repercussions that are caused by uh, you know these circumstances as well that um, seem to me to be arising in these cases and this policy is specifically um, having this detrimental effect on them as well am i correct
1: I agree. And and it goes back to our sort of earlier uh, discussion about how different visa offices approach things differently. I mean, I remember many, many years ago, we would not see uh, refusals based on, let's say, Section 40 out of uh, Beijing. Um, We started seeing refusals based on Section
0: 39. So 40, just just to make it, uh, 40 is miswrapped. 39 is financial uh, inadmissibility.
1: Oh, really? That, that's yeah. right. So, what, what happened Whoa. here is I'm like, what's going on? Why is Beijing issuing 39? So, what happened is that they oh, never a over that before. Yeah, they did it for just a brief period of time and then they stopped. They all
2: got thrown out and then they realized yeah. that they had to get smarter.
1: And yeah, correct. And so, they adapted their, they suspected courier parents, so called courier parents. So, someone's here. Um, they get divorced, they go back to China, they marry some, I don't know, quote, you know, rube from backwater uh, China, and um, there's no employment history. The person here is not employment, uh, you know, in, their income is not sound. The person overseas is probably 50s or 60s and has no uh, language ability or. Uh, you know, employment history other than farming or, or whatever else. And so instead of doing a refusal based on genuineness, they started doing refusals based on finances, which is even though there's no income requirement to sponsor a spouse, they started saying like, hey, there's no provisions other than social assistance for this individual. Um, and that was a very strange. So again, when, when we all get together, when lawyers get together, and maybe I'm the, so let's say I do a, a lot of deli, so Raj will have some insight into Delhi, particularly perhaps here. You do a lot of Beijing and, and what have you. And so you see things that certain offices do that cannot be found by any other visa office. Manila wow. will find that equivalency of the 1984 ass grab that got discharged or dropped. Oh, no the, I know will how do to that.
2: read. I know how to read NBI clearances and marriage certificates and birth records from the Philippines like nobody's business. You know these like <laughs> Article 34 marriages. I know what those are. You know <laughs> but yeah. these strange skills we develop based on specializations yeah. with p- persons of certain nationality. But yeah. no layperson is going to understand what these notations mean. They're um they they have relevance and it, it does come in waves. You know when all of a sudden the visa offices become aware of what an Article They've 34 adapted. marriage is, all They've of a adapted. sudden they're like, oh yeah. great, this is a new yeah. a new game we can play and all of a sudden you get all the bigamy cases or all of those. Um, the Article 34 marriage is the thing in the Philippines where you don't get a marriage license because you're claiming that you didn't need one because you were living together for a period of time prior to your marriage and they just they now say that there's perjury because you didn't actually live together for the requisite period. So you do wonder what to-
0: goes on at a visa post when they discover something like that oh yeah in uh korea happy
2: dance yeah
0: like to be been in i guess korean applications are now processed in manila but um when they realized that they had been requesting the wrong type of police certificate all that time and that is the police certificates that koreans were providing omitted a lot of offenses and the the, the, like oops that they must have just gone through And, and, now the the and now the number of refusals you get yeah.
2: the, that the you best. get, because they don't have those three words written on the clearance. Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: The best uh, insight that I got for, you know, y- you talk to some of our CBSA colleagues that have been posted overseas and you, you can get a little bit of insight there. You start reading case law and, and GCMS notes. The best insight I got was that Vic Satsavich book, Points of Entry, where he goes and does 100 interviews overseas. That was really interesting. And in fact, I attached one of his chapters to that response to Delhi, which talks about that interview setting, that power dynamic that a lot of these officers uh, said that, yeah, with I know when someone's lying within two or three minutes of walking into that room. And I just want to tell these officers that you don't, you don't actually, because demeanor is very difficult to assess and different people respond differently to, to, to stress. And uh, there's a language barrier and there's a cultural barrier. And you're not as good as you think you are to determine anyone's hidden uh, motives or intentions. Yeah, yeah I, for have sure. a,
0: I have a copy of his book. He actually came in here to drop it off um, and I've been meaning to go back and reread it.
1: I used it. Yeah. I, I taught from it for when I taught uh, the immigration uh, course at the University of Calgary. I, I actually uh, uh, used it to, uh, uh, for my instructions.
0: Have you yeah. read
1: Pete Bahara's uh, book, Doing
0: Justice? No, I've read a lot of books
1: uh, during uh, this pandemic, but I haven't gotten to preach
0: (laughs) yet. Yeah, a uh, whole passage that stuck with me about how once an invest—it's very important that people who start investigations or have suspicions that once you do that, especially if it's like say in Chandigarh, a deterrence policy, that policies get drafted, resources are allocated, people are assigned, and it's important for the sake of justice to realize, okay, we have to walk away. Um, and that it's very hard to do that once the machinery has started grinding. You're you're committed, yeah.
2: I want to go back to something that Raj said, though, and then to something that Steve said, that, like, um, in terms of the reading a lie within two minutes, like, the fear response looks exactly like the deception response in two minutes, you know? It takes a, you know, having spent however many years doing this type of work and working with a client, I know that, you know, usually I don't get um, get to the belly of the the content, you know, when I'm working with somebody who's highly agitated for at least an hour. And, you know, this is kind of what I do all day, every day. So, um, y- you know, um, yeah, anyways, I think that that they do look very similar in terms of the response, but in terms of what Steve was saying before the, about the the shift toward um, putting the onus on the applicant to produce documents that aren't in their own possession, we talked about that being. Um, that being a real challenge, and I know this is something that's gone back for years in terms of caregivers, where they're asking for documents like personal financial documents from their prospective employers, and that is just another one where, like, you know, please send the notices of assessments of the employers whose home you're you're about to live in. Um, and just the I think that it's the touchiness of, like, which employer who's about to welcome this foreign national into their house is going to want to give them their personal financial documents to send to the visa office. Um, But it's another one that I've appeared in federal court on um, frequently where they've then denied the application because of the lack of sufficiency of evidence that they can cover the salary and all of that sort of thing Um, and just raising procedural fairness arguments there. Um, We talked about what the kind of hidden motive might be, but in terms of the legality, it goes back to what you said earlier, Raj, about is this about credibility or is this about insufficiency? Is that this gives the decision maker the ability to say this is about insufficiency of evidence to show that this is a genuine job. And I know this argument that you're talking about that they say, well, we do have the authority to assess whether or not this is a genuine job. And I know that there was an LMIA approval there, but still we do have the authority. Um, It's still to me that jurisprudence is quite murky and I don't know if you've seen that that has come with more clarity in the cases that you're arguing. And just to add one other thing to that too is that in the new iterations of the caregiver program, there is no LMIA process. That assessment does get done by the visa office. And so I see more challenges there. They have actually taken out the LMIA and the assessment of the genuineness of the job does get done by the visa office. And so As far as I know, none of those cases have been decided yet, but I've got a real fear about the officer deciding the genuineness of the job and, you know, like, and whether or not the person's a qualified worker um, when I'm sure they're going to be requesting documents that that worker can't possibly be in possession of.
0: Oh, it'll be in Edmonton, I think, for the caregivers now, or are they still going to, I mean, that's a tangential issue to the question. We don't
2: know because we haven't seen any of them get decided.
0: Yeah, the jurisprudence that I've seen has been, because um, the well, the first thing I did with uh, that procedural fairness was think, well, how can they even ask this? The LMIA is there. But the jurisprudence is that officers can revisit what was done in the LMIA. Well, it's not even what was done. They can just go beyond kind of the scope of uh, what, like it can ask for additional documents, it's like a hearing de novo, you can almost treat it. They don't just review, they don't review whether the LMI was reasonable, but they could look at new documents to determine, because they do have to be satisfied that it is genuine. Yeah, um, there's,
1: yeah, I think, yeah, there's a subterranean sort of level of decision making that we'll simply never be privy to. Um, locally engaged staff or or decisions to uh, refer to an interview or to escalate, uh, you know, You'll put a sticky note on a file, which will never end up, for example, on those GCMS notes.
2: Don't get Steve um, started on sticky notes. He goes there's,
1: off, off There's, there's <laughs> other, again, there's, um, there was a glut of uh, caregivers from Chandigarh for a couple of years, and so all of a sudden it was taking 20 plus months to get an interview. So I remember. There, there are ways that. Uh, an office can execute, again, non-statutory, non-legal sort of policy, quote-unquote policy objectives, um, which are not amenable to judicial review.
2: No. And then they start saying that the job offers are not genuine because who, um, you know, first of all, human traffickers start capitalizing upon this when they see that, you know, no genuine employer actually wants to wait 20 months for somebody to take care of an elderly, they start you know, manufacturing job offers. And then, uh, y- you know, um, caregivers end up getting prosecuted for um, for misrepresentation when they arrive and the job offer no longer exists. So that was one that actually was a major issue when processing times did get that long. And I did end up <laughs> unsuccessfully representing many caregivers who arrived when the job offer had no longer um was no longer in place by the time they actually got here because of those long processing times so it's yet another example of where they were able to to execute (laughs) massacre the 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 legal rule operationally
0: yeah that's an interesting uh that it took us so long to process the application that we don't believe that the job is real because no employer would be willing to wait.
2: Well, but then the, they just arrived at the border. They would call the employer. The employer would say, "No, we don't need this person," and then uh, they would send them home. Um, and when the caregiver had received notice that the that the job had gone away, even if it was the night before they got on their plane, they would make it a misrep allegation.
0: Hmm. No, that uh, so. Just to tie it back, so how would you respond to a procedural fairness letter? Like if you were representing someone who did get a procedural fairness letter that said, "Hey, you know, you said you uh, were going to work as a caregiver for a two-year-old, and she's now four. We don't, uh, we have concerns that uh, this employment offer is still real. Like, what, what's the type of documents or response that you would include?"
2: Are you asking me or Raj? Uh, you. Or, or both. me? Um, well, I mean, if uh, the standard thing I would do is try and go back to the employer and see whether or not they were still intending to support the job offer, and if so, why they needed a caregiver for their four-year-old, and details about what the intention was in terms of before and after care, and and, and that sort of thing. That would be the straightforward way of doing it. It's more challenging if the employer has decided they no longer require that person on a full-time basis, and then it would be a whole thing of trying to scramble and see if I could get a new LMIA in place and then um, put it forward to um, IRCC and say the reason for the delay was yours and not ours, um, and so you have to accommodate this change of employment because uh, the delay is on you. Um, And I've done both things.
0: and a more recent um, question that I come across is you get a procedural fairness letter, say, that says, we don't have enough sat proof that you're cohabiting. Uh, we don't have enough proof that, I don't know, you worked for a year in this job. Please respond within 30 days, providing as much information as you can within two megabytes or within <laughs> four megabytes. Yeah. So how do you deal... Because I, I remember before I sent a box once of proof that someone was in a uh, common law relationship after a procedural fairness letter, and I have sent like, do you let file size dictate your response, or do you just wind up sending? This is case specific inquiry one out of seven, uploading uh, documents.
1: Well, I think I think it depends because. You know, it's it's like that Tolstoy quote from Anna Karenin, right? All all happy families are happy or alike in their happiness, and all unhappy families are are unhappy for sort of different reasons. Each procedural fairness case depends on the nature of the concerns, the ostensible concerns of the officer. Um, many times, you would want to do a access to information request and and get further details. Is some good. You know some good case law from you know Justice Diner in, in Tokyo, I believe. Um, take your time. If you need an extension, get an extension. If you need to, if you're a little bit confused, ask for a more detailed procedural fairness letter. You know sure. you you know I got a some kind of procedural fairness letter from my client in Hungary. They're like, oh, we have some concerns regarding your inadmissibility under Section 361B. Uh, you have 30 days to give us response. I'm like, well, you got to tell me. <laughs> What's the nature of the criminality? Uh, we, how do I do a procedural fairness letter if I don't know how to do an equivalency or who's saying what? And, right, so I think you use Justice Diner's decision in Toki, you ask for a very detailed procedural fairness letter, you ask for an extension of time if necessary, you get an access to information request perhaps and, and kind of go from there. And, and then, you know, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily subscribe to the file Size theory. I, I subscribe to the theory that it should decisively address every point of the procedural fairness letter. Um, you know, think carefully. What What is the officer trying to achieve here? This, if something seems odd to you, it may be that there's a sort of uh, some other unstated hidden agenda here. Are they? Um, many times again. In terms of procedural fairness, many times, do you need to engage in this regime? If you think something's weird is about to happen or something bad is going to happen or something that you can't fix might happen, maybe you can withdraw this thing. Um, Let's say you're called in. Let's say it's a marriage fraud. You're accused of marriage fraud from within Canada. You're a permanent resident. They call you in. There's no application in the mix. And they ask you to come in to attend to explain why you separated from your sponsor within a couple of weeks maybe you don't need to attend. Maybe that would be a mistake for you to attend. Uh, Maybe it's better that if they don't got anything, let it go to the immigration division and where they bear the uh, onus of establishing the case. So the answer as to how you respond to a procedural fairness letter is the unsatisfying answer of it depends. Depends on the nature of the PFL, depends on the nature of the inadmissibility, depends on the status, depends where you're at, depends on the risk. Uh, That you're facing depends on the alternatives that you may have. Uh, But each time you have a procedural fairness letter, there is some element of risk there. And too often we're called upon after there's been a response, an inadequate response to the PFL by some ghost Mm -hmm. consultant out of India or wherever else. And then they come to us to, with a refusal and then they expect us to work our magic at the federal court. Well, the federal <laughs> court is going to really look at what the response was to the procedural fairness letter. So if we've done it from A to Z, we've got a decent shot, a very good shot, perhaps at federal court. If mm-hmm. we get in and the later we get involved, you know, it's, it's inversely proportionate to the, to the success, I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think people yeah. just don't realize that you can't add anything new. At federal court, like you're, the record is sealed, and so um, and so that that uh, that really does tie our hands so much. And I really appreciate this comment too, Raj, that like uh, a lot of the time the PFL, it's really just a fishing expedition, and so um, just honing your reply to um, to to not respond to a fishing expedition because if you answer with three razor-sharp documents and not with 40 um, then they don't have more material to work with and you've just responded to their specific request and i'm not obviously not talking about you know failing to disclose uh, information that's relevant or material but just in terms of um, you know, if you if you are aware that they're trying to make a mountain out of a molehill, then I think you you want to be very precise in what you're putting forward. That said, in answer to your question, Steve, I think that um, sometimes those stupid file limitations, um, I blow straight past them. I don't think that they have any. It, it's supposed to be fairness. <laughs> and yeah, I think No, that, we
0: send like the this is case specific inquiry. Totally. One seven. Yeah, and, um, I
2: find those very frustrating. And even I feel the same way about even spousal applications. Please send 20 photographs. You know, it's like, um, no, you know, the onus is on you to show your. Yeah. You know, this is about sufficiency of evidence. Um, they can't put the onus on you to make the sufficiency of evidence. And then
1: convoke an interview because you haven't provided sufficient proof of the relationship. Yeah, forget <laughs> about it.
2: I, I don't look at that stuff. Um, I provide the evidence that is necessary to make out my case. Raj
0: did provide, um, and maybe we can slowly wrap up with uh, this other type of procedural fairness letter, which is more the investigation type. So the example he gave was somebody who's a permanent resident who gets a letter saying you may be inadmissible for marriage fraud. Please provide us with like you know uh, evidence showing to the contrary. In the permanent residence and citizenship revocation process, like we recently or we currently have a citizenship revocation file where the the initial letter just said we have reason to uh, believe that you committed misrepresentation when you obtained citizenship. Please uh, provide details regarding your establishment in Canada and why you're remorseful for what you did and what you did. Whoa. And you have this super broad um, question at the start, which is, well, they haven't specified what you did. <laughs> do you? And at the same time, in your H and C response, you you know, theoretically a big factor would be whether you're remorseful. So how do you balance? First of all, even trying to figure out what the thing that they're looking for is without just throwing up, you know, yourself just throwing darts at being like, well, if it was that, I'm sorry. If it was that, I'm sorry, versus not. So the issue between wanting to balance getting factors positively for remorse versus confessing to stuff that might not need to be confessed to.
1: Well, I. I think we have to start with principles rather than methods. In in terms of a principle, I would be aggressive where, or let's put it this way. If the burden is on them, then very often my default might be, and if I have a review mechanism somewhere else, then my default is probably to give very little. I uh, I like absence. I like uh, letting them do uh, what they need to do. And so it depends on who bears the burden and whether there's a substantive review. Um, And again, where the individuals inside Canada, where you're asking for something, um, you know, as opposed to what you're entitled to. So, where you're asking for something, then you're probably going to be facilitative and trying to hopefully you and the officer. Going to try to get to the just sort of conclusion. So, again, it depends on when to be aggressive, when not to be aggressive. I mean, I think just like in life and in immigration, many, many wounds are self inflicted. You mm-hmm. have to be careful. And again, this is why um, litigation or having some sort of uh, litigation background is so essential for applications. I mean, a lot of people do applications, but honestly, Without doing litigation, how do you truly understand what is relevant and what is material? And how far can you push this officer? And how far can this officer go? So I I think you have to bring that balance that comes out of litigation into each sort of application and response to the procedural fairness. Um, And I think the, the officers know. The officers know who can do it, who can't do it. I think the officers push and won't push certain lawyers because they'll know that you know, certain lawyers can, can, uh, can call bluffs and certain lawyers can't. And um, so it, it, I would go back to principles rather than methods because, uh, you know, there's procedural fairness. There's so many different sort of yeah. uh, aspects of this.
0: I think that's a good point that it's helpful to have a litigation, to bring a litigation perspective to a application process because you often hear, People talking about, well, we're going to JR proof, judicial review proof, this application. And oh, have you ever done a judicial review? No. Well, then how do you know like what that actually like means? Um,
1: <laughs> it, trying to judicial review an application might just cause the uh, the the contrary, right? Like, <laughs> you, yeah, you have to be careful. That's that's one thing that I've sort of learned is that you must think before you do something don't don't do something just for the sake of doing something just think carefully and consider first order repercussions second order repercussions third order repercussions
0: yeah no that's a good uh...
1: many many times we succeed out of Delhi lately um many many times i've withdrawn the uh, application because i do not want to jeopardize the pr application later on so many many times uh, you know again you withdraw and you know are you talking I, I, about like a fa- work
0: permit application when there's a PR application in process? Or,
1: or could be in process yeah. and they you know already see what's happening. The, the Fabian strategy, right? The, the famous Roman uh, general, he's, he's, he's handling this, uh, this guy from Carthage and he's like, look, this guy's a deadly general. Let's just withdraw. He has no siege engines. Let's just withdraw, withdraw, withdraw. Many times you would withdraw um, and instead of engaging.
2: And this because you see them going down the path of a misrepresentation allegation. Wow. That's really harsh.
0: Yeah.
2: Hi, this is depressing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, we'll see, uh, we'll see where Raj's response. Uh, it's takes like, it. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think even just shedding light on the distinction between visa offices, um, And then other, you know, people who are more academic and in tune with being able to go into the stats and research, is there a, you know, racialized component? Um, We were talking about from that section from the podcast that we recorded with Aiden about substantive equality.
2: Yeah, this is what I've been thinking about too, Steve, really.
0: Yeah, that is only in, say, Punjab, rendering decisions to send a message to the Punjab community. How does that impact, you know, people's right to substantive equality uh, under Section 15 of the Charter?
2: Mm. Well, it it sort of maybe it ties in too, but it's. um, I was thinking as a parting question for for Raj is. um, I've been wondering just generally. It's kind of an esoteric question, but what is your what are your thoughts about? the use of litigation as a as an instrument for public policy reform?
1: Well, litigation is absolutely necessary. I mean, um, when I was uh, with Steve on the last uh, Borderlines uh, episode on marriage fraud, it, it concerned mandamus. Uh, I, I, hand, I took a mandamus to the Federal Court of Appeal on forcing them to n- investigate uh, allegations of marriage fraud. and so mandamus is 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 a tool of democratic it's a democratic accountability tool. Um, certiori, these the, these uh, these remedies, these traditional remedies that we have, certiori pro, prohibition co or habeas corpus, mandamus, these are all democratic accountability principles. How do you ensure that those individuals that are tasked with carrying out an, uh, an executive a mandate from the executive, do what they're supposed to do and not do what they're not supposed to do. Um, litigation's it. The federal court is it. Unfortunately, again, you know, my earlier point, federal court is like using a hammer to kill a mosquito. Um, it'd be nice if we had greater uh, oversight mechanisms for overseas decisions, uh, greater training, greater oversight mechanisms, non-judicial perhaps oversight mechanisms, but we don't have it. And so, litigation all we've got to make sure that the officers at least have a modicum of oversight. Even though, as you put put it, these are a minority JR uh, of refusals made overseas are a minority, absolute minority. It's not it's not ideal, but it's what we got.
2: And I I, I totally agree with you. I mean, uh, um, you, you know, in terms of what their function is meant to be. Uh, you know, you're preaching to the choir. I just feel that's where I feel the sadness of the fact that even though this is your, this is your perspective on things, you are inclined to go with withdrawals as in the best interest of your client. And I feel that the piece that's missing is the part that looks at the jurisprudence and takes it up to say at a systemic level, we are getting this case law, and this is how we have to approach these overarching issues that continually arise. These are being repeatedly litigated with the same results, and yet it's not have, it's not trickling down to the frontline decision makers. Um, and so I just, you know, I think that there are certain limitations in the the federal court process, in the sense that there's no way of actually bringing together these overall principles and um, raising them as systemic issues, and that's something that I wish we could think. Well, of. we
1: tried. I think Steve tried. I, I tried, and so we we're. Once I saw this happening, the conflation of Regulation Four. With this non-genuineness, with Section 40, which is misrepresentation. After we won a couple of them, we got a couple of consents. uh, I reached out through a DOJ colleague, and I'm like, "Hey, can you talk to your liaison over over in Delhi? What's going on here?" Um, Now it turns out with Stevens' materials, um, they heard those concerns from DOJ council, and they don't care. Um, Ravi Sal, the program manager is perfectly fine with sending a message to certain communities, and we know who those communities are. So, you know, DOJ Council, our colleagues, it's clear from their perspective that we're right, that this is an overreach, and that's, uh, that's borne out by all the consents we're getting. If they, if they were on side right. with Rabbi Sal and, and these decisions, why are they not fighting us out on all of their, uh, they're fighting us out on a minority of them where there's actually true. some That's kind true. of case to be made. So yeah, and for I agree with you, I wish there was a way to sort of uh, uh, deal with this without open warfare, which is basically what litigation is. Uh, yeah, litigation it, it also
0: seems- is really good at shedding light. And I think you wind up getting a level of research Um to pick up on things that you might not have just in a straightforward application so I'll give an example like I would um, a decision to bounce an application that was express entry and wound up doing a deep dive rabbit hole on something that I've tweeted about which is that um, IRCC like repeatedly for five years tells parliament the house of commons committee on immigration that they don't reject applications that are incomplete that they work with MPs and reach out to people to fix them that I mean the most recent one was they said they have not refused a single application uh, during covid due to missing documents which is complete like you know it's just not the case I don't know if the person was just misinformed or if they are uh, relying on a legal distinction between reject and refuse an application anyway in the judicial review I included, all, like five years worth of these statements. Um, and DOJ actually uh, included a paragraph and I had just pulled it up, which says that, you know, as a quick throwaway, the applicant references several questions and answers in her material that speak to IRCC's willingness to contact applicants when <laughs> there's a simple fix to a problem with an application. However, any discretions are really at any steps are just at the discretion of the officer. So you can see that, you know, DOJ's position is, look, what they say to uh, Parliament, who cares? And you can take that back now to the parliamentarians, and it's something that I wouldn't have done that level of deep dive. And hopefully uh, the more light that is shown on this um, and other issues, the more that that drives change.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that... The shame of what you're saying, too, is that those conversations with the DOJ lia- liaisons, I think, would be very fruitful, except, of course, they are muzzled by client solicitor privilege. They can't speak to what they can't speak with candor to what the uh you know, to what the resistance is by the Ravisals and, you know, the, the parallel people at the Pretoria, at Manila, at Beijing, you know, and all of that sort of thing, which is a shame because that would be a really wonderful conversation to have, uh, really as an open conversation with the parliamentarians, but also um, with those in the visa office. But um, I feel like, Um, The conversation is being muzzled right at the point where it could actually be effective. Um, And I, I just, I wish that that could change. But also part of what you just said, Steve, kind of brings me back full circle to the beginning of the conversation when Raj was talking about you know, going back to Baker and, you know, where this whole um, Lord Denning and where this whole notion of procedural fairness came from. And I think that while we're talking about the rise of the jurisprudence around procedural fairness, there has been a corresponding decline in any human touch to immigration. And so like this automatizing, the on a, almost robotic manner in which Um, immigration processing works, the the need for procedural fairness safeguards has risen because, I mean, Dennis, who was the founder of the firm that I now own and run, used to talk about the days when he would walk with his clients into an immigration office, they would make an application, they would talk about the merits of the application, and they would walk away with the work permit. And so, This whole stuff about the jurisprudence around procedural fairness was slightly less um, volatile than it is now when we don't have a phone number, we don't have an email address, we don't know what country the person is going to be in sometimes where they're processing it, and there's no name on the letter where the refusal comes from. So this is really super hot, this topic, because of the invisibility of the decision maker and the automa—like, maybe it's not AI, but it might as well be—because— because it's a faceless decision maker where there's absolutely zero interaction between the human being who is applying and whose life is being impacted and the decision maker.
0: Well, you had talked about going back to first principles and like, you know, if you look at the objectives of the act, it's to see that families are reunited, to maximize the benefit of immigration. It's not to, uh, you know, scare the hell out of someone during an interview or require companies provide years of contracts with customers in order to get a, uh, someone the ability, basically to get someone the ability to enter Canada and work. Um, and I just feel like a lot of the, if we go back to the objectives of the Act, and if all of these resources were just, that are spent on these minutiae, and the minutia I think is the word I'll stick with, were just redirected to the objectives of the Act, the system would just function a lot more efficiently and not for really sure. lose anything.
2: Yeah, and I really do question the like, well, this is for the efficiency of the process. You know, I, the, you know, when they said that the completeness screening process was being done with the objective of reducing the time wastage, I really wonder, you know, when it was... Dennis and his client walking into the visa office with their documents, was that more time consuming? Like, you know, um, I would love to see the metrics on that personally.
0: Yeah. Um, Anyway, I think that is it for now. Um, Unless you have uh, any last thoughts on procedural fairness or deli, I feel like any thought could turn into five minutes of just uh, pounding the table about, systemic injustices and uh negative experiences um no, that i think applicants I think, are having yeah.
1: no i think that was <laughs> uh i really enjoyed that I, I think i learned uh something as well so thanks for having it's me therapeutic on <laughs> i suppose but uh yeah here's Say hoping for here's hoping for you know 2021 to be uh a better year than 2020 happy new year to you both and uh And uh, looking forward to seeing you guys in person one of these days.
2: Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, if only. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Talk soon.
2: Take care. Okay.
1: Bye. bye Bye-bye.